As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. This is pretty much pop and culture podcast, not so much reviewing films as allowing them to review us. Today we're talking about the new Disney film Mulan and its source materials. I'm Mark Lintenmeyer, very much able to tell the female from the male when two rabbits run side by side. You just look, it's, it's hard to see, it's a pink bow. I'm Erica Spires, afraid to say anything political, but afraid to not say anything political. And I'm Brian Hurt. And while I'm still not sure what she is after watching Mulan, clearly I gotta get me some. And our guest. And I'm Michael Toe, an Asian-American film and TV actor who was not in Mulan. <laughs> the one. The one. Yeah, you didn't make it into this one. <laughs> no, I would have loved to, though. Thanks for joining us. Good morning. Thank you. You know, there's a lot of political controversy surrounding this film. I guess we should just say we're not NPR's pop culture happy hour that just deals with every individual film that comes out. And in some ways, this film is not particularly remarkable. It's not part of a giant franchise or anything, but we did think it was representative of a lot of things. I mean, not only Disney live action things, but it's sort of the Asian American equivalent of what Black Panther was a couple years ago in terms of a huge freaking Western made film with an all Asian cast. And the political stuff surrounding it is interesting. And so, Michael, you had a little more credibility and knowledge about that. So we felt like that you were good to bring along. Do you want to sort of give your background in relation to this? Sure. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. So I'm an Asian American actor, film and TV stuff. A lot of my friends are in the cast here. And this movie, though, was actually really the first Hollywood movie with an Asian American cast of this size. So I guess the last big one might have been, you could say, probably Crazy Rich Asians, which was a movie that was done for $30 million, And that was a breakthrough two years ago, 2018. But this was $200 million. So this is a definitely a very, very different level. And I think it then made it possible for all the people to start to critique it because of Disney as a big target. Right. It's a blessing and a curse, it seems like, from all the things that I've read. They did a lot of things right, or at least tried to do a lot of things right. And then there were just certain things that didn't go right at all. And now that is the source of a lot of the controversy now, outside of just whether or not the movie is successful as a film. That's right. When you don't have a lot of movies that are like this in the Asian American community, all of a sudden, all your expectations are becoming onto this one movie. So there's really very little room for error. Actually, there's no, as you can probably see some of the reviews, there's no room for error. So everybody wanted, well, we wanted this, we wanted this kind of representation. Well, what about the connection to the movie? Well, this was too unrealistic. And it was all these different parts of people's wants of this thing to save everybody. I think it was unrealistic to have that and the expectations were, it had to be perfect. 
All that aside, I think this movie also suffered a little bit from the fact that its trailer was pretty good, and I was excited about it. And there are just a lot of movies that I've seen a trailer for that got my blood up, and I went to go see it, and I was, this isn't the movie that was promised to me, or that was sold to me in a beautiful 90-second version of the best parts of it. So it would be good, maybe, to just know everyone's feelings on this movie. Did anyone like it? I liked it. Okay, so I'll start, just because I think... It's weird. So I grew up watching Disney films, and then this came out, I think, around the time I was just the age to not really watch Disney films, right? It was just like, I was busy with high school, and it just like wasn't cool to go and like seek out Disney films. So this is one of the many that I missed during that time. So I just recently watched the animated film and watched it with adult eyes. And I'm kind of pissed I didn't watch it back when I was a kid, because it was an awesome feminist movie. And like, it made me feel proud as a woman to watch it. And so now watching it with adult eyes, I thought, you know, the animated film was really good. I wish it were longer. I wish it had more time to develop the conflict and the stories, but I still think it did a pretty good job. And I think part of the reason it was able to do all that it did was because it had music in it that was able to give us some nice montage sequences. We missed that in the live action, right? Personally, I'm glad they didn't make it a musical in the live action. But I think the movie could have gone longer. It could have gone deeper into some elements. It's always strange to me to see what is kept and what is not kept. That's never something that, like, I've talked to you about Lord of the Rings, I think it was. Like, it was never the things that they took out that bothered me. It was the things that they switched. And I'm like, why did you add in this other thing that was not a part of it? So that's more of what I'm asking myself is, like, why were certain elements changed so much from the animated film but also from the original source material. So I still enjoyed it. The live action was my first experience with the movie Mulan. And then I went back and watched the animated and I found that the animated was better. But I thought, man, I mean, yeah, I knew enough about the story. But one thing I really liked about the live action, I think the actors were really good. And I think it was beautiful. I loved the fight sequences. I was in for that. And I was surprised how violent it was for Disney. But I, of course, in adult eyes, Game of Thrones eyes, I was like, I want to see the blood. I want to see her take off the head. Michael, what's your background? Like, had you heard the story growing up? I am a fourth generation American. My other, my wife, my other friends who are, you know, first generation, they've learned this story in school. So this is part of folklore. It's, it's a story that's been passed down. You know, every Chinese kid knows this story. For me, my first introduction to this story was with Mulan, the animation version. And I loved it. It was the first time to me that I saw an Asian lead in a movie. Granted, it was animated. So it was very, very special to me. And I think that also adds to the pressure of this movie in terms of the live action of living up to those standards, which I agree with Erica. I don't think it did, but I liked the movie a lot. I thought the cinematography was beautiful. The acting, I thought in general, was really good. I thought the action was great. It was great seeing all these famous Asian and Asian American actors on screen all together and not as side roles, but as lead characters, as part of the plot line. So I thought that was great. I have three daughters, two teenage, one preteen, and they loved it. So that's another thing about this movie, too, is that it was released on Disney+. And with the movie, it was shot in New Zealand. And this landscapes were beautiful and the colors. and But to see it having this big of a movie being released on Disney Plus where you have to watch it on a computer or your TV screen is very different than going to a theater 
you know, 60 foot theater or whatever it was to see this movie. So we had this on our screen outside and we had, even with COVID, we've had our family come in, socially distanced, back to back nights. My daughters loved it so much. And then the second night, they had, we had the family the first night, the second night, each of them had their friends and they were laughing, crying, you know, all those things because they didn't really grow up with the animated version. And this is the first time they saw themselves on screen as the lead character in this kind of cool way. So from that angle as a dad, I love the movie because of what it did for them. Yeah. Oh, that's powerful. That's another reason why we wanted to cover this is because nothing else is coming out. Like it is the blockbuster movie of the summer. (laughs) It's coming in September here. Yeah, no, I saw this with my daughter as well and she enjoyed it just fine. I think I kind of got a little bored and wasn't paying as close attention in the second half. I rewatched the first half to take some notes and kind of what exactly was making me cringe. They're just things that are normal to Disney movies that are just over the top lessons of, oh, it's stern, traditional family. You must go with family honor. (laughs) Oh, but I want to be myself. And then it shows, you know, that you should actually be, your. you know, that's a fine lesson to teach to a 13-year-old or nine-year-old. I don't know exactly what the target audience was, but I appreciated that they tried to make it more realistic. I wasn't a huge fan of the animated. It was fine. I didn't remember it very well. I had seen it many years ago. I rewatched it after watching the live action one, and I didn't actively think it was better, unlike most people, I think. Mostly, I just, I had recently seen Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon with my family, and I just thought that that was so much better <laughs> than Mulan. Well, yeah. So much more exciting <laughs> and authentic, and I think I would rather hear these lines in Mandarin with subtitles than I would woodenly sometimes read the way they were. So I have lots of things I could pick on, but, you know, there were really good action scenes, and the cinematography was wonderful, and the acting overall seemed great. And, you know, I guess I do appreciate the fact that it was... As much as I like Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, since it was not aimed at American audience, there was no attempt to make, for instance, all the characters look different enough so that us white people who are, you know, not so discerning could like remember, wait, is that the same person? Is that like, (laughs) that's a horrible thing to admit, but this film was very careful in making every single character, you know, it's just like in a TV show, like, okay, let's make sure that this character has a, is the only one with a beard. And this one is wearing the red shirt all the time. I think there are things, it's not just a cross-cultural thing, but just things you can do to make it clear who is who and what's going on. And I appreciated that in this. So overall, you know, it was fine. Watching Apollo 13, I don't think my wife could keep the astronauts straight because there are all these <laughs> guys in astronaut suits with blonde buzz cuts that looked exactly the same. So, <laughs> yep, you know, yep. it's. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. And in Game of Thrones, I got people mixed up frequently. These young bearded men, right? Yeah. That's the thing with this movie, right? It's definitely no crouching tiger, hidden dragon. But to have that comparison, it's tough for Mulan to, you know, you could argue that's one of the, that type of movie best ever. You know, there's a lot of expectations. And I think that's where when you're seeing reviews. I think people were disappointed because of the high expectations for the movie. Brian? I haven't seen it in a review I've read, but there's a movie that I think it was trying to emulate, perhaps in style or in spirit, which is kind of an odd thing for a Disney movie to be doing. And when I finally thought about it in this light, it made a little bit more sense to me. And I think I liked it a little bit more. And that's the movie 300. And it's crazy for Disney to be trying to be like Zack Snyder. And it's more crazy that I am waxing rhapsodically about Zack Snyder. But that's maybe the movie (laughs) of his that I like the best. And right, we have this narrator. It's not named in this movie. I'm not sure we know who that voice at the beginning and the end. It's Tai Ma. He's a good friend of mine. He's the father. I was looking in the credits and I couldn't see that. All right, He's a good friend of yours? He is. 
That's oh, awesome. Gosh, he's so awesome. Inside information from Michael. Awesome. Well, I had a cool uh, talk back with the cast, the Asian American cast, right after the movie on the premiere weekend. So I know a lot of the actors there, and it was tough for them. I mean, this movie was expected to come out in March. Big Disney release, the big movie to start off for 2020. And they got their L.A. kind of private premiere out. And then everything was shut down. And so all of a sudden, Disney's ramp up was coming up January, February, March, and about to open, and then they had to stop it. So then all of a sudden, March 27th then became, I'm not sure when, then it went to July 3rd. And so then it was like this big, another kind of a little bit of a ramp up. Then they stopped that. Then it moved to August 27th. And then mid-August, I think it was like the 10th, 11th, some, you know, uh, very close to when the premiere actually happened. They said, nope, we're going to actually stop all the theaters and have it September 4th on Disney Plus, not in the theaters. So from the actor point of view, and also from the business point of view, it was a very unusual release. Think of how much money it costs to market movies. And they probably spent a big portion of their budget already earlier on, and then not sure when. So they had to do, instead of a six-week or three-week kind of release push, they really essentially did a nine-month <laughs> release. And so budgets were less. And, and imagine the actors, and Erica, you probably could relate there, right? Imagine the actors like, oh, this is my biggest chance ever, my breakthrough. And then all of a sudden, no, no. <laughs> so. Yeah, it's hugely disappointing. And you're right, I hadn't really thought about that, how much extra money has to be spent on marketing when your marketing rollout lasts for six more months than you expected. And that really, I think, is the reason more than any that we're talking about Mulan right now is its very unusual circumstances of its release. And it's the first one to have this unusual pricing structure and it's sort of a test balloon. I've been looking to see if there are numbers. I don't know that Disney has any reason to release. It's kind of amazing we know what box office is all the time for movies and how they're doing, but I don't know if it's been said anywhere how many people are getting that in the U.S. It's that $30 add-on to get Mulan. It's done pretty well in certain places overseas. So in China, it did not do well. Its opening weekend was about $25 million, which is a big disappointment. But other countries, it's number one and doing well. And you're right, Brian, the numbers for Disney Plus, they've been trying to guess. And some say it was actually pretty decent, but the full numbers won't come out till the next quarter. So we'll find out a lot more then. I hate going backwards in these, but if I don't finish my thought on 300, I'm going to sound like a crazy person. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll just say that this idea of telling a story as an unreliable narrator and then showing that on screen, right? In 300, it's the skies going dark with arrows. And in this movie, it's the invaders running vertically up the walls or a witch who could turn into a bird. It's the sort of magic you would include as a story if you're telling a story, whereas you would not include a singing dragon. So it's really consistent with that kind of storytelling. And from that standpoint, I don't think it was successful, but at least it made sense. So it gave me a little bit more of an appreciation of the movie than when I first watched it. And I just I think I was hoping for something a little bit different. And I really wished I was watching it on a big screen, as we've already talked about. I should have just sat closer to my television. Lesson learned. You're totally right, Brian. I haven't watched all of the Disney live action movies. I did see Cinderella and I thought it was fantastic. Then when I saw Beauty and the Beast, I didn't even make it through. And I think it's because I loved the original so much. And you can control so much more with animation, right? Like I love to have their actual actors singing stuff. But when that happens and they're not great singers, it's really, we've talked about this. This is very difficult. That auto-tune magic. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's tough. So like, 
I am glad. I was excited about Mulan in part because it looked a bit more adult. The fact that they weren't having it be a musical actually, I think, is very appealing. I think my main thing with it is this is clearly an epic story with a ton of depth, even if the source material originally is quite short, at least the poem. I don't know what other kind of material exists for it, but there is so much time to develop more. And that's what I came away wanting. And in that way, I think it's successful because so far none of the versions I've seen have given me as much as I want. So it does make me want to seek out more and see maybe some of the, I don't know, Michael, if the Chinese versions, have you seen them? Like how many are there? How successful are they in comparison in terms of the story? There's a lot of them. I've seen just parts of them. So a lot. It's kind of like, I don't know, just a normal kind of fairy tale that we have in America that, that you see all these different versions. So there's a lot. The big one was, I think, about 10 years ago that they did. That was a pretty big budget. I saw parts of that, and surprisingly, for a much lower than $200 million budget, it was pretty good, but a different style. And it's not Disney, so it had a different flavor, different tone. So despite all the various Chinese versions, both of these films say that they're based on the 1998 kids picture book by Robert Sansushi, which is not much longer than the original poem. And so I was kind of looking at the original poem, looking at that book, and then looking at these two versions and how the story developed. You know, of course, in anything where you, it's a legend and you kind of know the main beats of the story, things are predictable. So that opened up, it's a different kind of storytelling. And I was wondering, so like, uh, Tai Ma's, one of his great scenes is where he's getting ready to go to war and he's all injured and he's looking at his sword and his hands are shaking and it's so dramatic. But it was sort of, for me, undermined like the dramatic impact of that scene by the fact that, you know, he's not going to war. Come on, you know. <laughs> and in fact, looking at the older versions, that's not even a thing. She doesn't sneak away like she does in both the movies, in the poem or the original story. It's just that clearly he can't go to war and they don't have another option. And they just determine as a group, it's best for the family if you go. In fact, it's not even like she really wants to be a warrior in the Robert Sansushi book while she's out there. And the biggest difference was just that it's a 12-year endeavor in the book and the poem, which would have made it a very different kind of story to actually have it be a long-term epic and she doesn't get discovered as a woman until after she comes home and reveals herself to her companions. The companions are not even discussed until that moment when she comes home and reveals herself. She actually, while she's at war, is like, you know, I wish I could be home having babies (laughs) and, you know, having an honorable marriage, but it's duty that is calling me. It's not her inner chi and her force like individual nature. So they really change what the feminism and what the overall message means as these films develop. Whereas in the original poem, I gave that quote at the beginning that in some form in all of them of you can't tell when two rabbits are in the field running side by side, which is male and which is female. In other words, it shouldn't matter. That's sort of the original version of feminism, like blindness to sex. It's just based on talent. By the time of the Sansushi one, it's she's actually congratulated at some points during her battle years for combining the virtues of the male and female. Of course, nobody knows that she's female at this point, but she exhibits the grace. And that's actually in the animated film Mulan 2. I watched just the beginning of it, but there's a song right at the beginning where they talk about balancing the warrior spirit and like balance and grace, which is not explicitly described as like the male and female virtues. But Sansushi does that. 
move forward by the time we get to the films, then it's more, you know, explicitly, no, it's pursue your individual nature. At least that's what the new one is. It's not that there's a womanly essence that is okay to express. I think that's even in the 1998 version, but by the time we get to the current one, it's, no, if your individual nature is a big chi force-using badass warrior, then it shouldn't matter. You can do that in your own way, which, if you're female, is going to be a, a female way, but it's not expressing the essence of femininity or something like that. And you didn't even use the term midichlorians, Mark, so that was good. <laughs> One of the parts of this movie that was very different than most movies, we have a very focused view in Hollywood with kind of American movies and American audience. And we don't really kind of realize how big the China audience is in terms of just population. And so a star in China is way bigger than our biggest star here, if you actually count worldwide. So this movie had some major stars, Gong Li, Donnie Yen, Jet Li, the Mulan, who Liu Yifei, that are mega stars in China, but not as well known here. And you could see the movie was, it had two different audiences in some ways. It tried to placate to the China audience in some way. And then at the same time, it was an American movie. So it's kind of, it had this kind of this balancing act. And it felt in some ways that they never really completely got the audience in either because it was trying to do both. You know, sometimes you have these Hollywood movies that try to add in some flavor to, to open the audience, but this wasn't just a piece of it. This was literally fully, it felt 50% to have an audience, China audience and 50% uh, a U.S. audience. That's a distinction between this and Mark had talked about Black Panther being a thing for black audiences. It was fundamentally an American movie, the way that this was, I don't want to say international, but it really was targeted at two audiences, which is to say the United States and China. So, Mark, you were just getting me thinking, too, about this one is unique in that it talks about chi, right? The other ones don't really talk about your chi. That is the midichlorian equivalent here. If I take what your thesis is, it's basically that now we're talking about something that is individual, whereas before, in some of the stories, it was more about filial piety or it was about community. And that is something I think that is interesting. And maybe I'm just looking at this from the wrong perspective. But if you take something that's largely individualistic, rather than talking about the feminine and masculine or whatever, the yin and the yang, then isn't that kind of going away from a lot of what traditional Chinese would have taught about filial piety and making it something that's more individualistic? Was that intentional for a more Western audience? Or for a young Chinese audience? Right. Is that where some of the controversy may have come in, or am I just reading this wrong? What do you think, Michael? I don't know. I might have to pass on this one. <laughs> <laughs> that was at least something we read in some of the articles, is why Chinese viewers hate Disney's Mulan, is the name of the article. Quoting a Chinese reviewer, under the code of Chinese culture, Mulan presents the inherently American narrative that you can overcome anything in the world by being yourself. It uses our culture as the medium to convey these values. Another reviewer, a Western understanding of Chinese culture as conservative values of feudal piety, failing to realize that many of these values have since been abandoned by the Chinese people. It just wants to look Chinese enough to fool the Western audience. Hmm. Compared the film to The Taste of General So's Chicken. Oh, God. I mean, another part of the controversy is that the writers and the producers and director were not Asian. So that was a big part of it. And while I'm pretty sure that the research was done correctly, it opened it up to that criticism. So anything that was a little bit off was jumped on right away from the start, just in optics alone. 
But also this movie was released, you know, in 2020, but this was in the making for years. You know, this right. kind of movie was not just done. So what was okay in a climate back in 2016 or something when it was first started doesn't necessarily fit for 2020. So you had talked about a little bit of that with in one of your podcasts about with Hamilton and how sometimes musical theater takes some time to ramp up in terms of coming out. I think it was the same kind of feel here with a big $200 million, that kind of budget movie. I mean, I think that sensitivities change at that speed. One of the other articles was saying, like, there was a scene where she kisses her love interest sort of earlier in the film, and that was removed on the advice of Chinese audiences. That would not have been proper behavior for her. Oh, I am so proud of Chinese audiences for saying that, just from a feminist perspective. (laughs) Make it about her. Don't make it about the love story. I don't know what they would have thought of Mulan, too, is apparently all around. They're about to get married, and there's trouble. I guess if you get married, then your husband's ancestors become your ancestors for the purpose of protecting you. So Mushu's out of a job. And that's the big conflict. That's where I stopped watching. I'm like, no, no. And, you know, right or wrong, Erica, you know, that part to me was it was the China influence there. If you looked at any Cinderella, like you mentioned, or Beauty and the Beast or the romantic piece of it was much stronger. But that also brings up another factor is, is the way Asian American or Asian males are viewed in Hollywood. And there's a whole issue of uh, masculating and kind of asexualizing Asian males. Oh, so that's another factor that as an Asian American watching, I wanted the kiss there. I wanted the romantic piece to be ramped up to show that on screen. Interesting. Well, he's very hot. So if you use your friend, you tell him like it wasn't lost on me. I was just glad it was still feminist. So Asian American males, the way they're viewed on in Hollywood is, as I mentioned, asexualized, very, you know, non-romantic. But now it's starting to change a little bit. But where it is in Hollywood now is kind of the biracial. So maybe half Asian half something else. And that's so you're starting to see those leads Ugh. are coming in. So it's kind of a step. Whereas Asian American females, it's, it's different. It doesn't have to be that biracial to kind of be okay. So for my daughters, they've never had an American movie where they'd be like, wow, maybe some smaller things, but nothing big like this. And they were gushing over him. So we, we did a little after the Q&A. We did a, <laughs> we did a <laughs> oh, do you see the post? The post one? No, no, I'm sorry. I didn't see that. I saw the, the Q&A when you asked him about his, uh, was it a 12 pack? Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so after the Q&A, the, the public Q&A, we had a post thing. And so my daughters came in. I have a 17-year-old, a 14-year-old, and an 11-year-old. And that age, they don't talk to their dad much at all. They talk back all the time. There's very little connection that's not argumentative at that age. To, for them to jump on when I was talking with the cast, I've never seen them. Like, they were gushing over him. They were like the kids that they, they normally never let me see that part of it. They are just tough. Oh, I don't care. Yeah, whatever. But they just came in and just pushed me out of the way, and they wanted to talk directly to Yosin. I've never seen that before from them. It was really powerful. So, you know, it, it does affect kids, you know, and then especially Asian American kids. I mean, it, it does form their opinions on things. And to me, it was really important to see that. So sorry, Mark, you're saying Crazy Rich Asians is actually partially whitewashed because Henry Golding has an English father, whereas, you know, the character clearly is two Chinese parents. But to have him be a sex symbol, they had to be half Asian. Is that an example of what you're talking about? Exactly. I mean, I wouldn't say whitewashed, but yes. Beige washed. Is that a thing? <laughs> If you look at kind of the Asian American male actors that you know, kind of or see on screen, most of them or a very high percentage of them are half like Daniel Henney. I don't know if you know from one of the CSIs or, you know, he's half. um, It's more acceptable. So when he was cast, I support him. I fully support it. The individual, but as a pattern, you can see it again and again and again. There's a new movie, Christmas movie, that's kind of a breakthrough for Asian Americans that stars Tai Ma. 
and this Asian American family for a Christmas movie. So, you know, most Christmas movies, it's the Caucasian family. So this is the first Asian American, I forget it, maybe it's Hallmark, Lifetime kind of thing. The three main stars are the dad and the couple. And Tai Ma, who's the old dad who's not romantic, you know, he's 100% Asian. The woman, 100%. And then the male love interest is partial. It's not a one-off. If you kind of look at all these different examples, you'll see the same pattern happening again and again and again. I think Hollywood is ready for that stuff. But when you go through all the business aspects of it, there's all these decisions made that when you have that much money, it's hard to make change. And you see how slow sometimes these things take. You're right. And you see very similar things with dark-skinned Black women, right? And there's been a ton of controversy lately about how many light-skinned Black women are in major roles, but the dark-skinned Black women still haven't broken through, except for like Lupita Nyong'o, right? So yeah, thanks for bringing attention to that. I hadn't thought of that as being, that didn't cross my mind as like a white woman watching this movie. I was like, yeah, feminism. But yeah, that would have been a win. His example for the musical theater piece is The King and I. You very rarely to see a the main female tupped him, I think, as, as a non-Asian actress. But you've seen many times for many years the king being white, even the original, or half. And my daughters were in up at North Shore Music Theater with Lorenzo Lamas as the king. <laughs> it's been a pattern. So as long as he's foreign to us, to white Americans, any kind of foreigner would do a Russian, that's fine. <laughs> Yul Brenner, yep. All right, I have an honest question, and I'm trying to, and maybe there's something I'm missing. We, we keep talking about this as this big first, truly all Asian, but Hollywood movie. And I keep thinking about the Joy Luck Club, which it was set in America, and, and there are some non-Asians, but I mean, the first, as I look at the list on IMDb, it's almost entirely Asian, also an Asian writer and director. And there is some crossover in terms of actors who are in that and who are in Mulan as it happens. Like, that might be why I'm thinking about it. What's disqualifying? about that as being culturally important as far as representation. Great point. I don't know what the budget was for that. It was 10 million, which now would be closer to 20 million in adjusted dollars. So not chump change. And it was from Hollywood Pictures, which is a studio that made other Hollywood movies. Sure. Yeah, you're right. There is a lot of crossover. There's four daughters in the Joy Luck Club and two of the daughters are in this movie. So Ming-Na Wen, who is the voice of the animated version of Mulan, does a cameo in the live action. And the mom, Rosalind Chow, was one of the daughters in Joy Light Club. Joy Light Club is viewed as one of those movies that we're talking about a movie now that was 27 years ago. So it's been so long since that's happened. So maybe I'm mistaken from a, the only or first one or depending on what level, but and we're bringing something up that happened 27 years ago. Yeah, that's how, that's how much space is in between. Maybe that's the lesson to draw there. And certainly the men are either non-existent or terrible in that. There are no sympathetic men, as I can recall. It's been a while, but that was my memory of it. And that was one of the big controversies there is that the Asian American men there, if there's come controversy, that's where the controversy came from that movie. I've been still watching Deep Space Nine. So Ros every time Rosalind Chow said anything, I was just, just, just brought into Star Trek world. But I guess that should be the norm for a big Hollywood type movie is that everybody's been in a million other things. Of course, you're going to have those associations. What did we think of the, the sort of casting of the lead actor? Apparently it was very hard to find somebody, you know, who had all those skills, who could do the martial arts stuff, who was fluent in English, but she's somebody who's been acting since she was a kid. So, you know, for us, it was like introducing this promising young starlet, but this was a, a household name for the Chinese audience. Right. And that, that was another example of who were they trying to placate there when cast? The argument of, oh, we couldn't find the right one. Well, <laughs> we couldn't find the right one that maybe 
that had the popularity in China, which is unusual, right? Usually if you have a lead there in a Hollywood movie, you would have the lead being someone that's known here. And you could just see that where they were split and how do we mix this from a casting perspective? I don't know. I feel like having Daisy Ridley or Hayden Christensen, having somebody, you know, not that's completely hasn't done anything, but like has not been known that there's something that clears the palette that they were going to maybe put Leo DiCaprio in that role, but like that would have been distracting. Like that wouldn't have been Star Wars. And so kind of the same thing I felt with Mulan that, I don't know, at least that was not being familiar with her work that it struck me as like freshly introducing someone to me worked better in that than if it had been, I don't know who (laughs) meeting those criteria. I already know their work, but I'm sure that there are some names. (laughs) There's also something about the specificity of selling an aspect of the character. And this came to Robert Patrick being cast as Terminator 2 and James Cameron wanting someone that people would only ever see really for the first time in that role. And so they wouldn't think of him as something else. And and I think with Mulan, I don't think that actor looks particularly masculine, but I haven't seen her playing a woman in other things so that when I see her in a soldier's uniform, I can buy it a little bit more or they can sell the androgyny of it better than if this is something I had seen her playing a woman in 20 other things, I would say, oh, no one would believe that she's a man. So I think that lack of familiarity maybe sells the story a little bit more. We haven't talked about the political controversy surrounding the lead actress and the film. And Michael, how do you feel about that? Should we at least talk about it? I mean, that's obviously a big part of the controversy. When you talk about a movie that's this size, it becomes much bigger than the movie itself. What do you think, Mark? Yeah, it's interesting. You know, when reading, oh, this is such a controversial film. Like the controversies that are interesting to me are the stuff about like, are we misrepresenting Chinese culture as more individualistic than it is? As I was saying earlier, I think the sensitivities and stuff move very rapidly and have grown greatly, you know, since 2016 or whatever. But the overall aspirations of a culture don't move that quickly, right? If there's a fundamental disconnect between American individualism, this thing that we've been promoting since 1902, at the very least, you know, if not from when Tocqueville was looking at America, to a little more group identification, filial piety thing that goes all the way back to Confucianism. While I would not at all be surprised if young people in Japan and China and Korea are buying more into those Western values, I'm sure that is a slower process. And, you know, that's just something I'm actively interested in. Whereas some of these background scenes that we shot, you know, not even where the actors were, but just the scenery were on land that the Chinese government is doing horrible things to. And so therefore the movie should be canceled or the lead actress tweeted something that was not politically cool at the time, those seem like more typical, petty, maybe grievances worth looking at, but like shouldn't undermine the movie as a whole. Those topics are what is all over the place now. A lot of them are coming from the Asian American community themselves. And so this whole idea of there's this movie that is to see these kind of characters on screen and literally all Asian cast, and yet there's a big portion of the community that is against it. And you're right, like the B-roll piece, literally B-roll, And it was, you know, if you did a B-roll in a certain area, well, sure, thank you to the area that you shot the B-roll in. But it became this huge controversy over the area itself. I mean, how does that connect to the movie? And part of the reason they're going after Disney is because it's Disney. And these big companies are always going to be lightning rods, in part because you'll make the news when you go after them. I don't mean to say that in a really, that it's done strategically, but it's sort of the natural thing. Of course, it's in the forefront of people's attention, and it's what's going to draw all that kind of noise. Mark, you got to tell me what happened in 1902. I'm so interested. (laughs) 
<laughs> I was trying to think when when the uh, Horatio Alger, when was the Horatio Alger? That's like when the American dream was formulated in the way that we have now. If it was 1902, you win the podcast. <laughs> I'm sure That's it awesome. was not. <laughs> 1868 was Horatio Alger's most famous work. So I was off by a few years. <laughs> Missed it by that much. <laughs> Wait, wait, 60, 68. So that's uh, that's thirty four years you missed. If you did that with the Asian American films, you would cut out all the you crazy Asians, Mulan, and and the Joy Luck Club. A century from now, they're going to be just like, yeah, Joy Luck Club came out, and then immediately it was crazy rich Asians. It was it was just a string of Asian hits in America. <laughs> Puts things in perspective, doesn't it? Nobody's going to remember this crap. There's going to be seven more remakes of Mulan. They'll get it right next time. It's not at all clear to me how much they talk about the influence of the Chinese government on this movie and to know how much say anyone had or didn't have over aspects of it. But right, there's these very modern ideas of individuality and questioning your role and questioning family. But definitely we are all very loyal to the government and don't question our fealty to the people who rule us. And I don't think that's particularly Chinese so much as any government that might not be a democracy wanting to have that. Now, did the uh, Chinese government had sign-off over this movie? I kind of doubt it. But at the same time, did Disney say, well, we could have Mulan question whether she should go to war, but are we going to have trouble getting into theaters? Right? That's sort of the natural thing that a writer would just make a decision and say, well, it doesn't add to our story, and why would we do that when it's just not going to help us? So I, I think there can be some passive influence that's happening. I don't think there likely is anything malicious going on, but it, there is a certain cultural laziness to just going with the flow on that. Which is really interesting because with movies now, it's because it's the size and Disney the size, but this is relatively a new phenomenon because the, the audiences are not just you with the US, it's a global audience now. And how that affects as it becomes a global audience, those decisions, Brian, you're talking about are becoming more and more part of the fabric of making these bigger type movies, which is you know interesting. And obviously with this movie, it seems like that was a detriment to the movie. I'm curious how that how will be going forward. This is really exciting to me now. When I was in college, we all had to get a minor in global perspectives in the 21st century. It was a liberal arts college in, in the Bible Belt, right? But we all had to learn a little bit about China, a little bit about India, a little bit of, you know, like, and we took these philosophy courses and all, all sorts of stuff. So I technically have a minor in global studies, which means not much, right? I don't really know. Until today, now it's all coming together. No, but, um, but the point of it was to give us some perspective of the rest of the world and not just to look at American history and American perspectives on everything. Of course, when you're doing that kind of work, you're only getting a piece of everything. What it did tell us is that it was already happening at the time when I was in college, but even more so now that we're becoming a global society. And hopefully... What films like this do as we start to see things that are showing us far more aspects of Asian culture and Asian actors than we normally see in Hollywood. And like even watching Crazy Rich Asians, I'm sure a lot of people were like, wow, they're different. They're not all like this one thing. It's like now that we're finally seeing this because of globalization in part. I hope that what we all, and I, I can only speak as Americans, but I hope what Americans get and what everybody gets is that, hey, guess what? Not everybody in China feels the same way about these issues. There is a wide spectrum of thoughts and perspectives and philosophies, and it's not one. China is a huge place. 
Of course. And, you know, it's interesting because you always have to have in a movie something for the character to rebel against. So having like them be a provincial, traditional, like you would expect that in nearly any setting, you know, especially if you can get some clergy involved and having them put up their... Like the matchmaker in the original Mulan movie, you know, act with indignation at this upstart young people. (laughs) Like that is a universal trope. But the fact that it's being done by basically a Western entity, Disney, to a foreign to them culture that then will be like, you're not representing us properly. Well, we weren't trying to represent China. We were trying to set up a straw man for the characters to (laughs) launch against. Like that should be okay. It's just that, you know, when you're doing this cross-culturally, it's going to be touchy. When it's one of the first big films starring all Asian actors outside of Crazy Rich Asians in, in what, 27 years, you said, since the Joy Luck Club. Unfortunately, like Michael said in the beginning, like it has to be perfect or else people will pounce on it and nothing can be. Well, I think the $200 million version of Mulan 2, which Mark graciously <laughs> spoiled for everybody, will get it right. I have a lot of confidence in that. With a Eddie Murphy impersonator. <laughs> Was it really? He's a quite a good Eddie Murphy impersonator. Apparently he's done him in, I was reading about this guy, he's done him in many video games. He also does a good Arnold Schwarzenegger, uh, some other really good impersonations. Very talented voice actor. But it's interesting that I at least felt, I don't know if I would have if we weren't doing this podcast, but it's not like I researched, uh, what's the background behind Frozen? I should go and look at the Sno- original Snow Queen story or something like that. Because it's not reaching across, I mean, it's Scandinavia. That's not where I am. That's not the language I speak. It should still be reaching across cultural lines, but because it's still in the West, then like we feel like oh, we don't have to be as sort of respectful as that source of material and learn about its origins. <laughs> like, But this, like, oh, I'm learning something about China. That's cool. That you know, the, the thing they were learning in school. Actually, I learned a lot about. Do you, do you remember that the huts that they had where they were living in these circular? As an Asian American, I've never. I didn't even know what that was. I thought that was. It looked like a Hobbit, like the like yeah. a major <laughs> Hobbit town, <laughs> an Ewok village. Yeah. And I was talking to my wife. She's like, No, no. You know, those were big communities in a certain area. And I and I, I'm like, Wow, I learned something. An advantage over the uh, animated version where they just had the chickens and the dog and. <laughs> All right, that's one. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us, Michael. Thanks, guys, for having me. This was, this was a lot of fun. Yeah, thanks for joining us. Oh, I'm so glad. Yeah, Michael, it's, it's great to get to talk to you. Michael and I have known kind of known each other for a while now, but this is the first time we've really been able to actually chat about something. So what's coming up for you, Michael? Any place we can see your work or find you? I was in the movie Lucky Grandma, which is I played the, the bad guy. And that was one of the first movies that had a virtual release because we were supposed to release in August. We ended up releasing in May. So that's been a lot of fun. And I have a bunch of movies coming out. One called The Sound of Metal with Riz Ahmed coming up and one with Ryan Reynolds called uh, Free Guy coming up in uh, Christmas time. How exciting. Yeah, it's a lot. It's fun. It's been a good, a fun year. Congratulations. That's really awesome. That's great. We'll have to have you back again sometime. Think of some good topics you want us to wax on with you. So long, listeners. Thank you, listeners. Thank you, Michael. Thanks. Thanks, guys. Get more Pretty Much Pop at prettymuchpop.com. Get bonus content for every episode at patreon.com slash prettymuchpop. Pretty Much Pop is part of the Partially Examined Life podcast network, and it's also presented by openculture.com.